This is the Epilogue Audio Experience. And we rediscovered Gustavo Santolala with The Last of Us, currently playing on Spotify. So go check out. And all that jazz. Welcome to the artists. As Godard said, you don't make a movie, the movie makes you. In our movie-making profession, the workings of Murphy's Law is always at its best. In these candid conversations, we unravel those challenges that define the makers in the movie-making business. Hope these chats will inspire and elevate you to keep fighting for your dreams, but with a mode of reality check on it. I'm your host, Suchita, and this podcast is brought to you by Metaphysical Lab. Enjoy the show. With us, Larry Gross, an American screenwriter, producer, director. His Wikipedia page says uh, that he's also a visiting professor of film and new media at New York University, Abu Dhabi. He's best known for his collaborations with Walter Hill. And his uh, film credits include 48 Hours, Streets of Fire. In 2004, he won the Waldo Salt Screenwriting Award at the Sundance Film Festival for We Don't Live Here Anymore. His criticisms appear in Film Comment and Sight and Sound. I'm so elated, I'm so grateful, I'm so happy that uh, Larry took our time to be part of this podcast, to share his deep insight uh, into filmmaking, into writing and combining all art forms. So I hope you enjoy this extremely cherishable podcast episode. Hi Larry, welcome to our show. Hi Sushita. Our conversation that happened yesterday about different forms of thinking that's needed while you're writing different kinds of films, mm-hmm. and with your you know experience and the kind of films that you've written, um, mm-hmm. I would be very keen to know how you think when you write. Right. Well, it's a huge topic. Um, yes. It covers a lot of different aspects, but I think. Um, to just get started, um, the useful thing to remember, the thing that I tell my screenwriting students, is that telling different kinds of stories requires different kinds of preparation in order to begin. Broadly speaking, and this is a kind of a big oversimplification, I tend to divide, because it applies to my, me and my work, mm. is, that, is that I divide <laughs> the scripts that I've written and that I've read for the most part, seen produced into two general categories in this regard to this question, which is mm-hmm. they're the ones that require um, detailed outlining and detailed pre-structuring mm-hmm. in order to be written, mm-hmm. and the ones that essentially don't benefit from that at all mm-hmm. and where that is not going to be particularly helpful. Mm-hmm. Just to take examples at the extreme of one example of the kind that has to be preconceived and has to be pre-designed before you write the script, mm-hmm. uh, it has to be outlined, is, mm-hmm. is our thrillers and specifically um, plot-driven thrillers or intricately designed thrillers, say like Hitchcock's. Mm-hmm. Uh, those are things where you need to have the outline before you have the script. Sure. Um, the contrary extreme would be the examples of someone like, um, say, for example, Mike Lee, who happens in his particular case to collaborate with his actors mm-hmm. in, the, in the writing of the scripts mm-hmm. um, and, and literally produces the script in the course of producing the film. Mm-hmm. That's sort of the extreme antithesis to working with an outline, mm-hmm. um, because there, um, writing is literally a process of endless experiential rewriting, wow. um, mm. uh, and it, it doesn't it doesn't derive from a preconceived idea. It derives mm-hmm. from what you produce. Yes. So um, basically, the more. I mean, in, this is, again, a huge oversimplification, but basically the more subjective, personal, private types of stories, in my experience, mm-hmm. uh, can't really be outlined. You can only just dive into them mm-hmm. and, 
and write from your own kind of subjective, dreamlike sense of things. Whereas for thrillers or historical films, I mentioned last night in my case, the film Geronimo that I worked on with Walter Hill. Yes. Um, it was very, very necessary for me to immerse myself in a tremendous amount of research, and it was it was necessary for us to have a very planned out sense of what the historical narrative we were telling was going to be. That had to be determined in our minds before we could write any scenes. Yes. So that had to be outlined. Um, um, it could not simply be you know proceeded at on spontaneously. I just want to mention. This is kind of a little bit adjacent to this issue, but I think it's relevant, which is that on the vexed question of, you know, writer's block and, uh, you know, why people can't get started or can't seem to finish projects, I would simply make a general observation that I I really do think is true, Um, certainly true for me, um, that when I haven't been able to get on to writing a scene or getting to work on something that I know I want to write or that Mm -hmm. I've begun writing, Mm -hmm. it always comes back to the fact that I myself don't understand the scene. I literally Mm -hmm. don't know what it is Mm -hmm. that I want to write. I think I do, Mm -hmm. but if I really examine myself, Mm -hmm. I don't, I don't understand the scene. I don't, I don't comprehend what it is I want to write Mm. and sufficiently. It's not that I always do understand it so well. It's that there's some, in order to write a scene, you have to have some bare minimum of comprehension of what you're going to write. Mm. And, and when you're blocked, what you have to do is you have to go back into yourself, into your knowledge and feeling Mm. about what the scene is about and try to figure out what it is, you don't know about it yet. Mm. So, for instance, you know, it's very simple. If you want to write um, a scene that's set in a kitchen, in a professional restaurant kitchen, and you've never been in a restaurant kitchen, and you've never seen a photograph of a restaurant k- kitchen, and you don't have just a hugely, wildly great imagination that can make up what a restaurant kitchen looks like, you'll find yourself not writing that scene until you get some more actual information about what's in a restaurant kitchen. Absolutely. You, 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 you just won't be able to feel it. That's a kind of extreme example. I mean, the other thing, the more obvious case, is when we don't want to write a scene that is painful to us to write, Yes. Involving two characters who love one another or hate one another or hurting one another. The fact of the matter is, is there's something about our feelings, about the relationships um, between those two characters. We call it painful. But yes. that pain is actually a kind of derivative of something else, which is literally our incomprehension. We literally don't understand the feelings, which that then expresses itself to us often as pain. Okay, but it's not literally the painfulness of it. Once you understand it, the most painful scene in the world can be written. Wow. Until you understand it, it will never be written. And you'll sort of you'll you'll sort of describe it as, quote, too painful to work on. But that's a little bit misleading because what it is, is it's too unknown to work on. So what do you do about the writer's block? Well, what you have to you have to find you have to discover what the bare minimum of information is that you need, and you can never know that from outside. It's an internal process that you can't. That, I mean, it may mean writing, reading a book on the topic that you're writing about. It may mean revisiting another film's way of handling that scene. It may mean it may mean simply, honestly deciding what you think the scene means in a, to a degree that you haven't done yet. Do you, do you know what I mean? Yes. But all those, all those different remedies um, uh, prepare you to know enough about the scene to be able to write it. Now, it may be terrible, and you may have to rewrite it and rewrite it many, many times, but the first step is to have enough knowledge of it to be able to write it at all. Yes. When you don't, and what, how to define what that bare minimum required is, it's impossible. You only know it when you feel it. Or to put it another way, you know it when you don't feel it. 
because you make up endless excuses not to write it. Yes. You know what I'm saying? Yes. And, and the point is, is, it's always, there's this expression in gambling of a tell. You can, you know, a tell is when you can see that somebody's bluffing. Well, it's a tell when you can't write a scene. It's a tell that you don't understand it. And then you have to set about deciding what you need to do to understand it. You may need to do research. You may need to see work that's analogous to it that will kind of jolt you into understanding it. Or you simply have to talk to yourself and, and, and be honest with yourself about what you don't understand. Wow, that's, that's brilliant. That's brilliant, Larry. I'm going to jump um, to, this, uh, the, to this discussion we had yesterday again about the dominance of the American form of screenwriting. Um, I see a lot of that happening in uh, India as well, where, you know, everybody has sort of, you know, we have read, um, you know, Sid Fields and Robert McKees. Right. And, right. Um, uh, so what do you think, you know, so I feel that everything is going into the same pattern. That's the way we have started thinking. Certainly the danger. Yes. Yeah. What, what do you say to that? Well, uh, first of all, <laughs> You speak of that as a danger that's possibly afflicting uh, Indian cinema, and mm -hmm. it may well be since it's afflicting world cinema. But of course, mm -hmm. the problem uh, began, and it's in its most acute condition um, in America. Now, mm -hmm. the problem began in America as an offspring to the success of American cinema. So whenever one talks about this issue, one has to be honest and and see, the, see it from both sides. Mm. It is a problem, this routinization or this replication of certain you know, mechanical formulas for writing screenplays. It's, it's a gigantic problem. Yes. But it wouldn't arise if it weren't for the fact that American cinema has achieved enormous success. And it wouldn't have arisen if, it, if people weren't attracted to some of the results of this mechanical process. Mm -hmm. That has to be admitted at the outset. And one has to take that into consideration mm -hmm. when one is reflecting on all of this. Mm -hmm. That's not to say that I endorse it mm -hmm. at all. It's mm -hmm. simply to say part of the reality of the situation. That's mm -hmm. number one. Mm -hmm. Number two, um, you know, when the subject of Sid Field and Robert McKee come up, mm -hmm. I'm always, you know, mildly perturbed, not because I think it's so obvious that what they say is wrong or stupid, because some of it's wrong and stupid, but the main point is, is it's also just so profoundly old hat and mm -hmm. so profoundly, so profoundly, sorry to say, mm -hmm. not original with them. That is to say, everything that Robert McKee and Sid Field have said mm -hmm. at great length and, you know, earning thousands of dollars, in, you know, royalties for mm -hmm. is all just an expansion of about 20 pages of Aristotle. Yes written 2,000 years ago in a little essay called The Poetics. Yes. And I will just tell anybody out there who's, you know, thinking about investing in a course on by Robert McKee or reading one of his books, by all means do. I mean, I'm not against it or whatever. But the point is, is you will save a lot of money and a lot of time if you simply sit down with Aristotle's Poetics and read it in about half an hour. Because, you know, Everything that McKee and Field say yes. is essentially an expansion of a few key ideas about plot development, about character development, about reversal, and about knowledge that is developed in the course of a plot by Aristotle. Now, everyone knows that <laughs> what Aristotle says doesn't describe all narrative and all plots, but everyone can also say that Aristotle makes a handful of incredibly useful generalizations, which it is useful to keep in your mind as a background for whenever you do whatever it is you do. And it's like everything else with these doctrines. These doctrines that McKee and Field propound, they are all useful if they're not handled like religious edicts or handled like you know, holy writ or dogma. Do you, do you know what I'm saying? Yes. They basically, they're true to the extent that they, are, they come out of common sense. And they come out of 
but and the other thing, of course, I would say, the most obvious generalization, is that McKee and Sidfield, and in a different way, Aristotle, are writing about popular art for a popular audience that is meant to achieve the widest possible audience, somewhat in the, quote, lowest common denominator sense of that term. And there are projects that are simply not conceived of or conceivable that way. There are times when you want to write for a smaller audience, when you want to write with a more specific kind of intention that can't be adjusted to the norms of a Robert McKee or an Aristotle even, where, for instance, the emphasis on dramatic conflict is simply not what you want to do. You want to do something else. You want to do something that resists dramatic conflict. You know, I always say, you know, if you're watching a Samuel Beckett play and you're not on the verge of boredom, you're not experiencing the play properly. The play is a gamble with boredom. Mm. The play is a contest with the question, how far can I go in the direction of boring the audience without boring them? Right. Yes. So so that is a complete disavowal of the categories of Aristotle, the categories of Robert McKee and Sid Field that wants to do something else. Yes. And if you want to do something else, you can't follow everybody's rules. That's the painful part of doing something original. You also risk alienating the audience. You risk producing something that is of no interest to anyone. Those are the painful alternatives that you confront when you try to be original. On the other hand, if you're not interested in incurring those risks, you better say goodbye to originality. Now, (laughs) one of the things I've learned in doing this for 40 years is that originality isn't the only virtue. And being good (laughs) in a conventional way is hard enough. So that if you never turned yourself outside the parameters of Aristotle and never turned yourself outside the parameters of Sidfield and Robert McKee, there's more than enough intricacy within those to still, you know, sustain you in trying to do very difficult and interesting work. Do you know what I mean? In other words, profound, radical originality may not be your cup of tea and it may not be what you want to do. So... The idea that you must shatter the norms represented by these types of writers is not true either. But what is painfully true is, is if you're interested in originality, you have to be committed to shattering those norms. You have, to the extent that you're aware of them, you know, some original people have a kind of wonderful naivete in which they never learn these things and thereby aren't circumscribed by them in some sense. But that's not really the norm. The norm really is of original people is that they learn all the conventional ways of doing things. And by some profound nervous breakdown that they have, they confront the fact that they cannot do things the way others do them. And then they shatter the norms in a very, very original and conscious way. And that's a very painful process. It may be an ecstatic process, you know, for some people also, that breaking loose. But every great original writer talks, or artist for the most part, talks about the moment where they were able to see past the conventions that trained them. You know, there's a famous moment in um, the history of American painting, when what the movement known as abstract expressionism was was um, sort of began with the paintings of Jackson Pollock. Yes. And there's a there's legendary statement made by one of his peers who followed in his footsteps, namely uh, Willem de Kooning. And the famous statement was, Jackson broke the ice. And that's what originality is. That, mm. That's that's. And what's hilarious about that statement and what's important about that statement is you go back and you look at Pollock's paintings before he broke the ice, Mm -hmm. and he was the most ridiculously conventional painter Mm -hmm. you ever saw. Mm -hmm. It's the same thing when you go and see the early work of Picasso and the early work of Cezanne. Do you know what I mean? Before they made staggering innovations... They were, com- they, they, were, they were making good conventional work that was so good that you understand what the psychic pressure on them was not to make this innovative breakthrough. 
That's, that's one of the things about originality that's very badly understood, in my humble opinion, which yes. is that every, almost every authentically original artist has this incredible temptation to be a competent, not original artist. They're mm. usually able to, to, to be good in the conventional way, and they can see their future stretching ahead of them of doing good conventional work that they're going to be rewarded for and that it's certain they're going to be rewarded for and they make the choice, the decision not to go down that route. And that is an incredibly important part of being original that we don't talk about as much. We talk about the breakthrough. We don't talk about what the temptation was to go back and be more conventional. It's really interesting because you can also see artists who broke out of their norm once or twice in their careers and then went back to being more conventional because they couldn't, because they couldn't quite hack it or they didn't have as many original ideas. I mean, this is an oversimplification, but in my humble opinion, for instance, without a doubt, Bergman's greatest film, his most original film, is a film called Persona, where he absolutely shattered the framework of narrative as we know it. And after that, he never made a film like that again. (laughs) You know, he made many excellent films. His conventional films are 20 times better than most people's, okay? But Persona has a unique, distinctive quality. And there are a number of artists where you can point to the moment where they exceeded the limits of themselves, even within their own, you know, highly developed art. And those moments, those masterpieces are also the moments where they achieved a level of originality that they never had even reached before, no matter how good they were. Sometimes it's a kind of linear, observable, step-by-step process. I think like in the case of Hitchcock, where he was a superb filmmaker for 25 years, and then suddenly, in the middle of the 1950s, he became a genius. (laughs) He went into this stage of development, and there's an originality to the succession of films. For me, it's Rear Window, Vertigo, and Psycho, that suddenly he has a level of originality that obliterates the extra, almost the extraordinary uh, work he'd done up till then. He had done more conventional, superb, more conventional work, distinctive and personal to him, and clearly pre- dealing with his preoccupations. But th- those three films and most of that work in the 50s just has a level of complexity and a level of originality that is completely beyond what he'd been able to do up until then. That's the kind of breakthrough in the career of an artist that everybody dreams of. You know, you dream of, you hope you're going to develop, you hope you're going to begin to be competent, you hope you're going to be able to do something good. And then after a while, that goodness becomes a norm. And then you're looking around for the question, if you're honest with yourself, how can I break through this norm? How can I break through this norm and not hopefully give up whatever I accomplished by being good in a more conventional way? Wow, that was Larry. That was brilliant. But coming uh, to the point of conventionality, do you think that's directly proportional to commerce, which oh, it absolutely. is? Oh, absolutely. I mean, so is is that the reason they are the artists in the early earlier stages of their careers until they go to a certain point are, uh, you know, not comfortable uh, breaking through something that's right. Well, the idea that we do more conventional and more commercial work at the beginning of our careers obviously just makes normal human sense. Mm-hmm. It's like because one of the, the to be to begin to write, to begin to create anything is hard. Yes. And the, and the comfort level that is brought to you by saying, "Well, I'm making something according to principles that I believe are in accord with an audience." That reassures us psychologically mm. in the anxiety of beginning to make work. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Mm. Then a mysterious thing does happen almost for everyone, which is that everyone discovers in the course of making work that the work begins to take on qualities they didn't anticipate. And mm. they begin to delight in experiencing that more or less, though it also makes us anxious. Mm. But the point is the work, the work we make always evolves in surprising ways. And it takes on characteristics and meanings and values that are quite different from the ones sometimes than what we intended or what we were conscious of intending. Anyway, that being said, it's totally understandable, perhaps necessary, not absolutely necessary, but relatively necessary that people try 
to be more conventional and commercial at the start of their careers simply because it assuages the anxiety of beginning to try to make work. Do you, do you know what I mean? Yes. And so making work is anxiety provoking and difficult and feeling that one is following rules and that one is giving an audience something that the audience will enjoy or reward you for. And literally the concern with getting a reward, i.e. making a living and all that stuff, that all you know, tends to determine most people into doing more conventional work at the beginning of their careers. And there's nothing wrong with that. And indeed, in some cases, you know, people are fanatically determined to, to be conventional and successful in that way. And that's what inspires them. And that's another issue entirely. Look, there are some people, including, by the way, incidentally, some great artists, some not great artists, but there are some people who are totally driven by the ambition to commercially succeed. Yes. That's their understanding of what they should do. If they happen incidentally to be a genius, then they're Charles Dickens or Alfred Hitchcock. But 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 some people, for some people, the drive to be commercial is is both just psychologically enabling to be successful and psychologically enabling to let them do work. And in other cases, the happy few, I would say, it inspires them to do great work. But the fact that it enables you to do any work at all makes it legitimate. Do you know what I mean? Mm. For some states, for some people, doing conventional commercial work is a stage in the evolution of them doing more original work. Mm. For other people who are more interesting cases of commercial enthusiasm, it's actually the route into their own originality. In the case of someone like Hitchcock, or in this case of someone like Chaplin, the desire to reach out to a huge audience is intrinsic to what's serious about their art. Yes. Okay? Interesting about their art. Now, unfortunately, the other thing is true. There's also a way in which succeeding in reaching an audience is the absolute route to mediocrity and being locked punishingly in a mediocrity that you can't get yourself out of. There's a wonderful film by the French filmmaker Bertrand Tavernier. Do you know who he is? I have not seen his work. But you've heard of him? Yes. He's, he's in his 70s now. He was a, kind of a major figure in French cinema in the 90s, 80s and 90s, I believe. That was his kind of prime period. And somewhere in the 90s, he made a marvelous film about a painter. It was set in the 1890s in the Impressionist period. And the guy is a kind of traditional old man. He's a traditional Impressionist painter mm -hmm. who's been painting landscapes and pretty things. And suddenly at the end of his life, mm. he begins to have an intimation that he should have and that perhaps he still ought to, but it's probably too late, he says, do something a little bit more original, something a little bit stranger and a little bit more. He's really talking about the more kind of abstract work of someone like Cezanne. Mm. I think there's a scene actually where he mentions Cezanne and says, mm. I saw that that was a new direction and I could have gone in it, but... You know, everyone liked what I was doing and everyone loved my work. And, and, and I really did. And yet at the end of the movie, I start crying when I think about this scene. The movie ends with him deciding to go to his, his atelier, his study in the back of his house and wow. turning his regular painting aside and beginning a new painting, you know, and starting this. He's a real old man. Do, do you know what I mean? Yes. But the idea is that he's going to confront this thing that he's, you know, basically spent his life yes. avoiding. Yes. Do, do you know what I mean? The yes. unbelievable, wow. beautiful moment. I think it's called, the whole film is done in tribute, of course, mm. as it would be to the films of Jean Renoir and in a certain way to the paintings of Renoir's father, Pierre Renoir. Mm. The, I believe it's called A Sunday in the Country. Okay. Which is a kind of which is a kind of um, transmission of Renoir's great short film, A Day in the Country. Wow! Which I'm going to have never that. seen it. You should see. Which, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, anyway, Bertrand Tavernier's last name is spelled T A V E R N I E R. He just edited and produced a very wonderful documentary about his own favorite films in the history of. French cinema, which you would also enjoy. Anyway, yes, go on. Yes, I'm going to watch. I'm going to catch on that. Uh, Larry, tell me about the challenges. Since we're talking about conventions uh, and commerce and originality, uh, when you are writing a film, uh, you're dealing with a lot of other minds, which includes yeah. 
your directors and which also yes. includes the producers and yes. how do you what are the challenges of working with other minds a and uh, at what point uh, you know at times when you do not agree with any of them uh, do you right. put your foot down do you try and align yourself how do you deal well, with the situation incredibly incredibly important question i want to say at the outset sure separate from interesting and, you know, try to answer it. But it's an important question only in the sense that obviously in a certain sense, with exceptions, again, to yes. what I'm about to say, but with only very few exceptions, yes. almost everything that's written that is ever produced into a film is, of course, done in collaboration with other people. There's a tiny, tiny, tiny group of filmmakers in the history of cinema who made films all by themselves yes. to just please themselves in exactly the way they wanted, shot them themselves, either cast them themselves or, you know, did everything themselves. Yes. That's an incredible minority. The, 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 the majority of films, including most of the great ones, are done in collaboration with others. So that being said, a simple pragmatic fact is that if you're not willing to work with others, you probably ought to be in another business. You ought to write poetry or you ought to paint or you ought to do something that does not require collaborating with others. Yes. Um, um, and to be willing to collaborate is one thing. To be able to collaborate is a slightly different thing, though obviously the, the will is the father to the deed. The point is, or the mother to the deed, the point is, is that, that um, you have to be open to the notion that working with other people is something you can do. Yes. Now, this can take the form of wanting to bend others to your will, and in some cases, that's the way people collaborate. Yes. I, I had a conversation many, many years ago when he had not gone into exile with Roman Polanski, where he referred to making films as a whole process of getting people to do what he wanted that his job was to clarify what he wanted to other people, mm -hmm. to explain it to them in precise language, mm -hmm. and then make them do it. Okay. Mm -hmm. Now, that was one view of collaboration. Um, um, he was also very, spoke very respectfully of certain of his collaborators and spoke about how certain of his collaborators enabled him to be able to do what he wanted in a way that other people had never been able to enable him to do. Mm. Um, um, look, there's all different ways of relating to other people. Mm. Um, some people feel that when they dominate other people, it's in those other people's best interests. Mm. At least that's mm. what they tell themselves. <laughs> mm. and, and the reverse is also true. If you've ever spent one day mm. on a movie set as a filmmaker, you know yeah. that there is a side to the people and the crew and in the production. A part of them is waiting for you to dominate them. They're expecting a certain level of authority. This is obviously a slightly different issue when you're a writer because most people start their writing activity alone in complete sovereign authority over what they do. And then they have to go through the process of putting it through the grill and the, and the grilling and the machinery of other people's opinions. Yes. And, you know, look, the only thing I can say about that is, you know, a big blanket kind of generality, which is that the process of listening to what other people say about your work is both absolutely necessary and absolutely something that you must be able to detach from at yes. the same time. Yes. In other words, you have to be able to listen to what other people say, and you have to be able to listen to reject what other people say. Sure. When you do, which one of those two things is, of course, the whole trick and secret, because you can reject the right instruction and really do your work harm, or you can accept the wrong instruction and do your work terrible harm. Yes. The sense, you know, the hardest thing to do in the whole process of making anything happen in the film business is finding those collaborators whose contribution and whose voice you yourself know how to make applicable to what you do. Awesome. In other words, yes. awesome. they either yeah. understand what you do and yes. therefore what they say applies to it like almost a second voice in your own head. Yes. That's one positive extreme. Another positive extreme is someone who has n very little direct comprehension of what you do but has a voice, a distinctive approach to what 
you're trying to do that simply casts what is an illuminating light for you. It's illuminating for you. It's not theoretically illuminating. See, you have to make a distinction, but it's even though their temperament and their approach doesn't involve literal comprehension of what you do, it somehow you feel applies to what you do or, or instructs you in some interesting way about it. And I'll just say this. I mean, here, here's the thing, which is, is that it, one of the things that's not a criteria, actually, mm. is how intelligent the person is. Mm. Because, because a person can be very intelligent and very interesting in their response to what you do, in their interest in what you do, and all of those things, and lead you in a totally useless direction. <laughs> There's a perverse way in which sometimes the stronger someone's opinion is of what you do, and the more articulate it is, the more useless it is, because you can't accommodate yourself to it. Mm. It's his or her really interesting version of what you're doing. It's not yours. Okay? Yes. Now, I'm not suggesting that the better thing is to go out and seek stupid people because they're no help either. <laughs> do, do you know what I mean? The thing is, is though, one, the thing is, is the fact that a person who reads your stuff and comments on it, either in a commercial way or in a practical way or in a colleague's way, the fact that they're intelligent. The fact that they're rational, the fact that they say interesting things isn't in itself proof or evidence that's useful. The sense that it's useful is entirely irrational and intuitive, just like most of the impulses that make you begin a project in the beginning are intuitive and irrational, as writers are fond of saying. It's asking why you, you know, wanted to do something is like asking why you fell in love with someone, you know, at the end of the day, it just happened and you don't really understand it. Yes. And the reason why what people say to you applies to your vision, how they could arrive at that yes. and understanding that is really beyond comprehension. Now, yes. there's the other question of, you know, the whole question of collaborating with people who are producers or who in America are studio executives or development people. And, you know, they are for the most part, only useful in the sense that you have to take their points of view in consideration because they represent a voice yes. that's out in the world that you have to understand is out there. Yes. You also have to understand that it, they have no training and they have no ability in applying what they say to what you are doing specifically. The great danger with their kinds of commentary Yes. Is that they are too general. What they say applies, but it applies in a too general way. When they when you hand them a romantic comedy, they're thinking about a thousand romantic comedies and the broad general norms yes. of romantic comedies that they know and they and the laws they've extracted from that. And therefore they aren't dealing with the specifics of yours. What they say tends not to be specific enough to be helpful. Yes. Now, you can't throw it out, especially if they're paying you. Do you know what <laughs> yes. I mean? And you can't throw it out. And there's usually, and this is the other half of it. Hmm. The other thing you have to remember in this consideration is, is you yourself are always slightly more conventional than you think. Hmm. And therefore... What they're saying has some application to what you're doing. Yes. Do you feel what I'm saying? It's, it has some application, but not too much. Yes. Which you do is you have to decide that you're not their enemy and that there's a common ground because there usually is a common ground. Yes. But what you mustn't do is think that what they have are specific and particular and precise insights because they tend not to. Because they're not thinking in those terms. They're thinking in terms of generalities. They have to be taken into consideration. If you were ignorant of those generalities, you'd be at a disadvantage. So you should listen to them. Listen, you know, and the other thing is it's, you know, it's nice to be sociable and to be not, you know, nice. Yes. But you, you have to, mis you can't mistake what they're saying as having a precise and particular 
reference to what you're doing. Now, obviously, when it comes to creative people that you're working with, a collaborator, that's entirely different. There you have to hammer out a ground on which you really find some ground in which you see things really literally and specifically in the same way. That's writing with someone. That's writing for a creative person who you share the creative obligations with, like a director, if you're a writer who's working with a director. And a handful of producers, very few in my experience, but a few, who are authentically, you know, have some of the talents of a, of a director or a writer. A few of those do. Do you know what I mean? Yes. So, you know, there are producers who think like writers, understand writing, and make real contributions like a writer. But here's the paradox. I mean, what you have to understand is, is a person contributes to your writing only to the degree that they're like a writer or to the degree that they write themselves. I mean, a fundamental distinction in my career in terms of working with directors, for instance, is that there are two entirely different experiences between writing with a director who writes versus writing with a director who doesn't write. Yes. And this is, there, there are hugely talented people of both kinds. Yes. There are hugely mediocre people of both kinds. Okay. Yes. yes. In just a practical way, it's obviously easier to work with a director who writes. And it's always uh, a per, there is always a kind of built-in sort of catastrophe involved in working with a director who doesn't write, yes. which is that there's a kind of pattern that happens in working with a director who doesn't write, where the director tells the writer in the first stages of working together that he or she is a genius who has done something incredibly unbelievable. It's incredibly unbelievable, of course, because he couldn't do it. Right. Mm. And so because he couldn't do it, he's in love with you. And he <laughs> thinks you are so incredible that you were able to do it. And it's sincere, by the way. It's mm. absolutely sincere. Mm. He means that mm. he's not, not bullshitting you. He's not lying to you. He's not deceiving you. He really, really means it. He's in love. He can't believe he's come on the script and you and all that. And all of that is true as far as it goes. If you then work together, he will start to have his desire to put his imprint on the script and to get you to start to change it in various ways. If he doesn't do that, you should be very suspicious of him mm. because he's probably a hack. I mean, a director who has no notes and no idea about how to alter what you're doing, I would be very suspicious of. Mm. And yet, at the same time, when that process begins, there is also almost invariably a period where in relative, if not absolute terms, that director becomes disenchanted with you mm. because the idea of the improvements he'd like to make, which at the beginning he sees as mere footnotes to your marvelous creation, they begin to assume greater and greater importance to him. He becomes more and more invested in them and he becomes frustrated when they never quite appear in the way he dreamed they would. Because just as he was incapable of writing the script, he's incapable of changing it literally himself, and yet he's got this concept in his heart and in his mind of what the magnificent result of his improved version of your script will be. You, mm -hmm. you see? Yes. The truth is, if he absolutely knew how to do it, he'd do it himself. Yes. And, but for the most part, he can't. I know of certain great directors, who are also writers, by the way, mm. who processes is to take someone else's script and simply rewrite it. Do you know what I mean? I mean, that's, mm. that's easier for them to let somebody else have written the first draft and then they rewrite it. And the point is, is bad or good about the results, and they can be both. The point is, is for better and for worse, they are writers. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Yes. They know how to do it. Yes. Do, do, do you know what I mean? Yes. Usually, usually it's the, the results are pretty okay because what they're doing is an application to what they want to do. The ones who can't literally do it themselves will keep hiring more and more and more writers yes. in, the, in the slightly desperate quest of the thing they can't identify exactly in their own self. Now, sometimes... Those results can themselves be terrific. And by some miracle, these non-writing directors um, find a way to apply something to the material um, that makes it work. 
One of the ironies about those filmmakers, however, is they are totally fooled by their experience and they go from making brilliant films where they've tinkered a little bit with a script to another film that's incomparably bad, mm. where they've done the same process of tinkering because they thought they knew how to do it yes. when they never really did. Do, yes, do, do you know yes. I mean, absolutely. I'll just take one example of a career like that. A guy who veers between making superb films mm. and utterly awful films, in my opinion, mm. is Ridley Scott. <laughs> and Ridley Scott has made some absolutely brilliant films. Yes. And he's made some absolutely atrocious films. In one mm. case, mm. he went from one of his very best films, Film and Louise, to one of his very worst films, Christopher Columbus. Mm. And, and if you ever saw his abortion, botchery, you know, horribly expensive, ridiculously bad Christopher Columbus, mm. if you knew that the guy who made it had made a film as intelligent and as well-written mm. as Thelma Louise just yes. before, you would not believe it. You could yes. not conceive of that possibility. Mm. Well, first of all, I know some details about this. And mm. one detail is that he owned the script of Thelma Louise for a long time. He was planning to have his company produce it. And he could never find a director who wanted to do it. And it came together suddenly at the last minute. And he didn't have time to change it. Mm. And he just shot it. I mean, he did a fantastic job. And he yes. just shot it. Yes. And, and in the case of Christopher Columbus, that happened in reverse. He had a script that didn't work. Almost everyone working on it knew he didn't work. But the money was only going to be there at one mm. particular moment in time, and he had to start without, and he said, I'll fix the script while we're making it. Oh. And of course, in case, he, didn't, he didn't fix it. Mm. <laughs> he made it worse, mm. right? Yeah. And, and, and the interesting thing is just that, that writers who don't, excuse me, directors who don't write often <laughs> don't know what they have, actually, meaning they may know on some visceral level or some emotional level they respond to the material, but why it works on a structural level, yes. they don't understand. Many times really gifted filmmakers, directors who don't write, have an alarmingly poor understanding of structure. And um, they, they, they have this incredible confidence sometimes, for instance. They may have very genuine, very important and legitimate visual gifts mm. that... They're right to place a great value on. They place a great value on those gifts and they're right to. Mm. But they don't comprehend the degree to which those skills won't bail them out of trouble if a script's story doesn't work. And um, I don't want to badmouth any particular director, but there's one particular director in my experience who I consider to be a genius in mm. some respects. Mm -hmm made, at least in my opinion, one masterpiece, um, who, when I worked with him, clearly simply did not understand scripts. Mm. He, he, he understood opportunities, he understood themes, he understood feelings, and he understood opportunities to create images mm. that were great. Mm. But there was a certain kind of logic to the story we were telling that simply it didn't exist in his brain. And when I tried to explain it to him, I could never get there. And he would always come back to me and say, no, but when you see the scene, the way I'm going to shoot it, mm. you, those concerns of yours won't be there because it'll be so brilliant. And I'll tell you the film that he ultimately made from the work we did mm. was a film, which if you just cut the highlights of the film together, mm. you would honestly believe if you were just channel surfing and you watched bits of it, mm. you'd think it was one of the best films ever made. Mm. <laughs> However, when you watch it all the way through, it's boring. Mm. I'm not going to say because I don't want to insult this guy, mm -hmm. but just mm -hmm. think about a very talented guy who's done one or maybe two great films and has made, in my opinion, a singular number of incredibly disappointing films mm. in relationship to that. I'm not going to give it away. Mm. But, but the point is, is he's a huge talent. That's number one. I just want to establish this. Mm. He's a huge talent. Mm. But he doesn't understand script. He just literally doesn't understand it. Mm. Specifically, I'll just make this generalization on the script we were working on. Mm. And this film eventually get made. 
The script, in order to work, needed the character to understand something that was happening to him mm. such that his behavior would change during the course of the movie. Mm-hmm. And I kept knowing that this was missing from the script we were writing. He was just having the character have one thing after another happen to him. And he didn't have that moment where the character's response to it changed and it needed to. The movie I asked him to see, to exp- when I finally got in frustration, understood that I was never going to explain it to him as it applied to our story, I said, I'll be able to explain it to you better after you see this movie because A, it's one of the great screenplays of all time, but B, it completely illuminates the effect I'm going for in relationship specifically to our plot. And the movie I recommended to go see was Groundhog Day, which mm-hmm. I still feel is one of the best screenplays maybe of all time, okay? Mm-hmm. The point is, is Bill Murray's character, that's an example of someone where more or less the same thing keeps happening to the guy. And yet the change in the movie, the change in the narrative mm. is his changing understanding of what's happening to him and mm. his changing his decision about how to change his response to the same thing happening mm. to him over again. That's now, brilliant. Exactly. But it was a situation in which, sort of more or less the same thing keeps happening to someone over and over again. Yes. And all I was saying is there's nothing wrong with that plot situation, but it has to have this other element, which is the character's evolving reaction to the same thing happening over and over again. Yes. And because he didn't include that element in the the film, Mm. although the things that happened to the guy were pretty compelling and interesting in yes. their own right, yes. the movie as a whole was a staggering bore. Mm. Because in this particular case, the character did not have the particular kind of evolution that he needed to have. Now, I'm not even, even offering some particular cliche about characters have to evolve, because I don't even think that's necessarily true. But they definitely had to evolve in this case. Do you know what I mean? Because... Yes didn't have the character evolve, imagine if Bill Murray didn't evolve in Groundhog Day. It would seem as if he, the characters, and the person that wrote them, <laughs> didn't understand what was happening to him. Yes. Do you know what I mean? If, yes. if, you're, if you're having the same day over and over again, and you don't wake up after 30 days and say, gee, I've got to vary my response to this. Yes. That's the only thing open to me. Do, do, do you know what I mean? Yes. You would have understood the nature of Groundhog Day, would you, right? Yes. If you said, I'm only going to try and get out of it this one way, do you know what I mean, the whole time, do you you know what I'm saying? Yes. That would be a boring movie, do you you know what I mean? Yes. The the, the genius of that script structure is, is that it's not only that he evolves, it's that the evolution is a necessity of the structure. You know what I mean? Everybody talks about character evolution as if it's a necessity. I can point to many films, great films, where characters don't evolve. That's the necessity of that film. That's the necessity of Raging Bull. Okay? That guy doesn't evolve. That's a suspense question. Will he ever evolve? Then there are movies about guys who you're hoping against hope that they don't evolve or that they don't change their point of view. Gary Cooper in High Noon is being put under pressure to change his point of view. And the whole question is, is, is he going to stay put? So mm-hmm. it's a, it, the whole suspense rests on, let's hope he doesn't evolve. Let's hope he doesn't change. Let's hope he ke- keeps to his integrity. So this notion that you have to have character development and evolution in that sense is not, in my opinion, true. I'm also you know, fond of, you know, in Asian cinema, I call it Japanese, the Japanese condition, mm-hmm. where a movie is about a character utterly incapable of changing uh, a movie a movie takes place at the 24th hour of someone's life in relationship to a certain image and we watch them move an inch and that's everything do, do you know what i mean in yes. other words they have a very very narrow range of motion but that narrow range of motion when it happens is devastating 
Do you know what I mean? Yes. Uh, um, I don't uh, know if you, I don't know if you have seen just butting in here. Uh, I don't know if you have seen the movies of Wong Kar Wai. Uh, I know them very well. Uh, One of the first people to had him in the West. I I've met him. I've actually spent wow. some some time wow. with him. Wow, you know. Yeah. So so I mean, he apparently like talking about uh, the scripts in a mood for love. He never wrote a script, you know. So right. how does that come from? What is the source of that? Well, first of all, he is a writer. Mm-hmm. He he writes. He writes them on. He, what he does is he he has an idea. He has a set of locations and a set of general plans. He responds mm-hmm. very much to the location. I met him when he just came back from Argentina from making Happy Together, yeah. and they'd visit Brazil a couple of days during the shoot, and he complained that he should have made the film in Brazil because it was more interesting than Argentina. Wow. But the point was was the point is is he makes his films are very much reactions to the physical locations that he shoots yes, in. Yes. For one thing. And for another thing, um, he has a tiny, tiny crew yes. that are willing to wait around while he dreams up what he's going to do that day. Mm-hmm. Um, um, he is at the extreme, obviously, of somebody who doesn't work with an outline, yes. who, who works like a jazz improvisationalist. Yes. But at the same time, interestingly, he's very, very well read. Yes. And he's very, very, very sophisticated about contemporary literature. Yes. And he um, he has kind of literary models in his mind. He's a, I mean, in a very different way, he's akin to Godard in this way. Yes. Um, and so he has a whole kind of file in his mind of certain tropes and certain images that he knows he's going to center things around. He's a case of somebody who wants to work originally. And one of the things he knows intuitively is, is that if he has a conventionally structured script, he's going to have a conventional movie. And he, Mm. for him, not having a script is about preserving, Mm. is having some kind of faith in intuition and luck and chance. Godard said famously, directing is listening to voices. And Mm. that's, and, and Godard was fond of, you know, insisting that, Writing, filmmaking for him was writing. It was like facing a blank page. Yes. He came to the day not knowing what he was going to do. Yes. There are a small handful of filmmakers who are literally that kind of themselves writer. Yes. Do, you, do you know what I mean? They write in the moment of their contact with the location, the set. A very small percentage of people have the inner concentration and the inner vision that is powerful enough to work that way. The majority of films that are done that way either collapse during the course of their being made, never get finished, do you know what I mean? Or are terrible, do, do, do you know what I'm saying? Yes. Um, um, or unreleasable. Um, there's a reason why there are scripts and there are a reason why people prepare them, which is that it's a general, you know, minimal level of quality. A floor is placed below you that you probably won't go below. If you produce an object that makes sense to enough people to get them to invest in it and follow it. But for instance, famously, the, the other unbelievably gifted writer who it turns out um, tends when he gets on set the first day yeah. to totally destroy the script that he wrote, the script that all the actors enthusiastically committed to because it was so brilliant. Yes. Um, wow. Is Terrence Mann. Wow. And he's a brilliant writer who gets on set on the, in the case of most of his films. Yes. Though I heard the new one might be a different case, but on most of his films, he gets to the set, starts to do the script and then stops on the first day mm. and throws the script out mm. and essentially says, you know what the sin, the script now we're just going to make it up Wow! and we're going to find it. We're just going to feel it because he's so into what happens between him, the landscape, the light, the camera, the actors, that is what he wants to express in the film and to rely completely and literally on the script is going to interfere with that. Yes. Now, there are disadvantages even in his films to work in that way, but he also gets effects a certain way. And Wong Kar Wai gets certain kinds of effects that you simply can't get yes. by shooting a scripted film. Yes. You cannot, you cannot, you have to be able, you have to have a mosaic, a, a, a gift for fashioning non-literal elements together in a certain intuitive way. And by the way, 
there are filmmakers who work this way who both give conspicuous cases of succeeding at it, and in my opinion, conspicuous instances of failing at it. Mm. Um, somebody who for a long time resisted ever shooting a script, and I think probably does so today, um, is in Vendors. He certainly didn't have scripts he followed for most of his films. Yes. And some of them work fabulously, and some of them, in my opinion, fail fabulously. The important thing to understand is the same exact method is being used. So, so how does how does a director or a filmmaker uh, decide on what kind of method they should use? It has to well, be like an intuitive thing. The fact of the matter is, yeah. every, every director is encouraged and yes. prompted, and for all sorts of realistic and practical reasons, usually makes a sincere effort to shoot a film the way everybody else shoots a film, by following a script. Yes. But the truth of the matter is, some directors make a couple of films that way, make one film that way, make a short that way, or they stop in the middle of their very first film and discover this is not the way I can work. Yes. Or they discover that they have to work differently than that. The great ex a great example that's worth um, um, talking about, I mean, if you know his work, if you knew his work, was Jacques Rivette, the great, a great French master. He yes. made two films, he said, yes. where he followed the script that he'd written with a bunch of people yes. fairly carefully. One was called Paris Belongs to Us. The, only, the other one was called Suzanne Simon and the Nun. They were both good films. Mm. They were both thematically related to his other work. They were both very, very interesting films. He announced that he, he had a virtual nervous breakdown while he was editing the second film. He said, I cannot make another film this way. I cannot do this. Yes. I cannot make this kind of film. Yes. I have to find a different way to work. Mm -hmm. And what he did instead was start to come on set with a cast, with a theme, with an idea, with an outline, and essentially shape the films. This was beginning with a masterpiece called L'Amour Fou mm -hmm. that he made with Boulogier in the late 60s. And, and, he's, and, he's, and then, you know, you know, Celine and Julie go boating resulted from this and other masterpieces. And they were... And he always had writers around to help, but the point was, was he shaped the movies in response to what he found on the set. Yes, but Larry, in today's marketing dominated and commercialization that's yes. all around us, uh, there is so much content and there is, what, what do you think makes one specific content uh, stand out? If I knew that, I'd be a genius who'd be rich. You know I mean, we wouldn't be able to talk because I'd be so busy being producing so many films that I knew how to make commercial. It wouldn't be funny. Um, I, I, there's no way of answering that question in the abstract. There's only the obvious thing to do in pursuit of that, mm. which is to express yourself authentically. Mm -hmm. And because, and by the way, you know, express yourself authentically if that means wanting to be Steven Spielberg and making the most commercial film of all time, mm -hmm. if that's what you authentically want to do, mm -hmm. or be the most esoteric and difficult commercial artist of all time, if that's what you authentically want to do. Because what you want passionately to do is what you will have the best chance of reaching an audience with. The truth of the matter is, is that Bressant or Wong Kar Wai's decision to make experimental narratives was a necessity for them. They had to do it because that was the thing they could do the best for them mm. in a way mm. that if they didn't do that, they couldn't make films at all. That was what Rivette said. If I have to keep making films the way I've been making them, the way everyone else does, I'm going to go nuts. I'm not going to be able to make films. I've got to make them some other way. Yes. The truth, and the truth of the matter is almost nobody does anything original for any other reason. They'd yes. all rather do it in a more conventional way. Yes. My own personal feeling is everyone should try to be conventional at first because that's what that's what you. That's how you find out the necessity of not being conventional. Do, do, do you know what I mean? If you don't, if you don't do things in the conventional way, you can't ever learn that that's not what you need to do. You yes. know what I'm saying? Yes. Um, um, you also have an easier livelihood. Blah 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 blah. Now, the problem with doing things conventionally and trying to please everyone and doing what everyone else does is that makes it harder and harder to make your work. Visibly your own. I always used to say in Hollywood, there are two terribly bad things in a screenwriter's career. Not to get your films made and to get them made. Because when they got <laughs> made, they often got made badly. And when they got made badly, you became indistinguishable 
from all the other hacks out there, even though your work may have begun as something else. The truth of the matter is, is commercial failure is a devastating effect on someone's career, but commercial success, especially in cinema, is also a potentially devastating effect on people's people's careers. Because the temptation to replicate it is very powerful and very understandable. Anyone who says that, oh, that guy, that hack, he's repeating them, he's just doing his old successful stuff over and over again, does not understand the number of screaming mouths to feed from family to corporation that are demanding that he continue to make the same thing over and over again. The pressure on him is enormous. The gratification of being patted on the back for it is enormous. Okay, And so the reasons people repeat themselves and do boring commercial hack work over and over again are very real, very, dare I say it, legitimate Mm. and very understandable. It takes somebody who is mildly sociopathic to resist that. Do you know what I mean? To turn your back on that when you could go down that road. Do you know what I'm saying? And when that road is self-evidently obvious to you. Okay? Now... But, but, but again, that road also has its own dangers. One of my favorite lines in one of my favorite films that I see over and over again mm. is a line, pool film about pool hustlers called The Hustler. Do, mm-hmm. do you know it? With yes. Pullman? Yes. Towards the end, the line is said by, by uh, it's a sort of allegory about originality, the film, among other things. And Paul Newman is... He's fighting, you know, he's, he's, it's the last pool game in the thing. And he says, how should I play this? He says to his antagonist, should I take a risk? Should I do the difficult shot? Or should I just play it safe and do it the way it'll be easy? And he goes, you don't understand, he says. Mm. Percentage, players, percentage players die broke too. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and that is a very, very powerful insight about not taking chances. Not taking chances and taking risks, not taking risks, is another way to fail commercially, ironically. Yes. So I'm going to go down the lane with rear window vertigo. A tavernier, a Sunday in a country, Groundhog Day, Jacques Revit, Robert Altman, Wonka Wai, Hitchcock, and many more. Besides, I'm also going to try and take a peek at Aristotle's Poetics, a detailed episode of that coming soon, uh, which we are trying to crack with Larry as well. So stay tuned and do write to us. So check us out on all our talent platforms where the podcast is playing. You can write to us on our Twitter handle as well. So do stay tuned and have a great weekend, guys. Aloha. Aloha.